I'm Bonnie Glazer, Director of the Asia Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Today, we're discussing China's dominance in global supply chains. In 1978, China was a nearly autarkic country. In the 30 years that followed, China transitioned to the world's largest manufacturer and goods exporter. Today, China is a major actor in global value chains. It accounts for nearly 20% of global manufacturing trade and an even greater share of many intermediate global value chain inputs that are essential for production. How did China become so deeply integrated into global supply chains? What has been the role of industrial policies in China's achievement of supply chain dominance? To discuss these questions, I'm pleased to have with us Professor David Bullman, who is the Jill McGovern and Stephen Muller Assistant Professor of China Studies and International Affairs at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, or SICE, where he's also U.S. Director of the Pacific Community Initiative. And his research examines economic and political development in China and the implications for U.S.-China relations. So thanks for joining us at China Global today, David. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here. So let me start with the big, broad question of how has China become so dominant in global supply chains? Sure. Uh, Great question. Well, I think given that we're talking about industrial policy today, it's worth saying from the outset that I think there's a common misperception that China's dominance in global supply chains is a result of top-down planning and industrial policy. I think, of course, industrial policy, as I'm sure we'll talk about, has led to a lot of success in certain sectors. Uh, But China's rise as the world's largest manufacturer, as you noted, and largest exporter, I think has been largely divorced from this top-down policy. Uh, And instead, I think there are at least four characteristics that have been very important for producing this outcome. So first is just luck and timing. Uh, China's development in the 80s and 90s really coincided with an ICT revolution and all these declining transport costs, um, which led to globalization, deverticalization, outsourcing, etc. Second, China had very helpful geographical location in Asia. Uh, Asia was leading supply chain integration through preferential trade agreements, but also through production uh, integration. And China was located next to Japan, Korea, and the Tigers, and Southeast Asia. And also there was large ethnic Chinese populations in these countries that would brought FDI back into China. But then the two most important aspects were China's comparative advantage in having a really low cost and massive, uh, but relatively well-educated labor force. So Mao's economic policies were, of course, disastrous, but they did lead to having a large surplus rural labor population that was relatively well-educated and healthy. So high human capital for its level of income, as economists would look at. And then finally, and most importantly, was market liberalization. So though we talk about industrial policy as being the driver of China's you know, supply chain rise, uh, really it was market liberalization, SOE reform, and some level of SOE privatization, and really the introduction of the private sector. And this had to do with opening up outside, also opening up internally. So places where there were more tariff decreases saw the greatest increases in productivity in China. Uh, FDI played a large role as well. And I could go on and on about this, but I think these important aspects of market liberalization are really what drove China's emergence as a manufacturing powerhouse. Now, policies and industrial policy played a role, and we'll talk about a lot of those. But even there, a lot of the policies that mattered most were local government policies that were trying to attract foreign firms, attract private firms, leading to better institutions and better infrastructure at the local level rather than really a planned economy. Let's talk a little bit about the industrial policy, where China has tried to invest, what particular sectors it has tried to invest in, and the role of industrial policies and how successful it has been in seeking to be dominant. 
Yeah, so I think there's a lot of variation by sector, and it's tough to jump in and make some broad sweeping statements about industrial policy. But you know, I guess the short answer is that I think a lot of China's dominance in sectors does not correspond with degrees of government investment through industrial policy. Um, this isn't you know a hard and fast rule, but generally government investment often goes to places where China feels it's been left behind or that China needs to compete with the West rather than places uh, where China has dominated. Private investment is probably actually more correlated in China with the areas that China has done very well in. But I think to give a real answer to this, I think I need to talk a little bit more about the industrial policy landscape as I see it in China. So I hope you'll, you'll forgive me there. Um, but, you know, industrial policy, I think, has a mixed record in China and elsewhere. There's been a lot of literature from Barry Naughton and others about the rise of industrial policy in China over the last 15 or 20 years, which is sort of the opposite path that many of the other developmental states we saw took, right, where they had industrial policy and then moved towards the market and China had more market and then moved back towards industrial policy. I mean, there's a big debate on whether or not this industrial policy is leading China to eat our lunch or whether or not it corresponds with the rise or the fall of productivity growth in China. So I guess my point of view is that top-down policy has had a fairly poor track record. Um, and the reason I think this is the main challenge is mismatched incentives between these central policymakers, uh, central bureaucrats who are creating policy, and local leaders who actually implement this policy. So if we think about it from this direction, you know, China is one of the most decentralized countries in the world, about 90% of expenditures at the subnational level, uh, which, is, which is just huge. Um, and many policies that we associate with industrial policy are really locally determined in terms of subsidies and tax breaks, low-value land sales, preferential credit, et cetera. A lot of these are determined at the local level more than at the central level. So there's a lot of scope at the local level to set policies. And then if that's the case, we have to look at the incentives facing local governments. And I think a lot of these incentives matter, but the ones that matter most are they have short careers and they don't want to have any instability in those careers and they want to have some level of economic growth during those short careers. Now, those short-term growth incentives, which have not actually changed that much in Jushi, and we can talk about that, are not conducive to effective long-term industrial policy implementation. So, you know, if we look in some, China has increasingly relied on these sector-specific industrial policies, but these are predominantly implemented by local governments, and these incentives are not aligned with central long-term goals. Uh, so you have much less effective implementation than U.S. policymakers, I think, often assume. Now, if we then look, you know, there's a long-winded preamble, but if we look at then specific sectors, right? Um, and we don't need to get into too many, and I'm sure we will as we go on. But I think a lot of the sectors that China dominates, getting back to the first question, are those where China had natural comparative advantages in a low-cost labor force that was relatively well-educated. So if we think about a lot of ICT and consumer goods in terms of electronics and iPhones and laptops, China's dominance there has really been a matter of comparative advantage and not industrial policy. But then there are, of course, many sectors in which China has explicitly provided support. And I think here, thinking about the failures and successes, it's really worth thinking about the nature of the sector and how central goals either contradict or support local incentives for rapid short-term growth. So a couple months ago, I testified at the USCC and I tried to differentiate between sectors based on this, uh, based on this idea of what the local government incentives were. And I think China is generally, not as a hard and fast rule again, but in, in general terms, has had relatively low levels of success in sectors that are you know, high tech with big foreign incumbents. Um, so semiconductors, which we talk about all the time, and I'm sure we'll talk about a bit more. Um, passenger aircraft, these sectors, they have large incumbents and they're huge, and China really just wants to catch up and be able to have its own ability to manufacture. China's had much more success in emerging industries that don't really exist yet, where China can create new demand, and by creating such, that demand can really take over a sector. Solar cells, which China was a laggard in, and then in the last 15 years has become by far the dominant player. High-capacity batteries are one that I've looked at now a lot. So for the testimony that I did, I looked at 
Biden's executive order on building resilient supply chains to see what sectors the you know, U.S. policymakers were looking at. And there it's rare earth elements and semiconductors and high capacity batteries were the three that were really focused on there. And I think this worked well for my own framework in my head because I think rare earth elements are actually a sector where central policy has been a failure. And this has been local incentives that have for illegal production, really, and, and, and environmentally unfriendly production that the centers tried to curtail for 20 years unsuccessfully that has led to China's success. In semiconductors, I think the key example of China's industrial policy, where you have the big fund, two rounds, hundreds of billions of renminbi, local government investment fund, hundreds of billions of renminbi. And I think it's a very unsuccessful case from China's perspective. But then you have high-capacity batteries, hugely successful based on creating demand through local governments that were really incentivized to do this. It's great to go say, we're going to go have procurement for large electric buses. Local governments want to do that if they're getting helped out. So I think these are, are three cases that show the differences in, in how industrial policy works in China. There's obviously many variables that are affecting supply chains today. Some may be short-lived. I was going to say the zero COVID-19 policies may not be so short-term, but eventually I think those issues will probably be worked out. But of course, the geopolitical tensions and particularly the strategic competition between the United States and like-minded countries and China probably will persist for some time. And that is having an impact on global supply chains. So can you tell us how you think this will affect Chinese government policies and its dominance in supply chains going forward? Yeah, so great question. Extremely difficult to answer, of course. Um, I think, you know, there's, of course, so much going on. It's tough to look into the future. I think first we should rewind to even 2016, pre-trade war, pre-COVID. China was already facing a lot of changes in its economy that makes, you know, the same sorts of dominance unlikely going forward. Right. In particular, China's low cost advantages for production have been eroding for some time now. And if you look at, you know, AmCham surveys of companies operating in China over the last decade, this sort of low cost erosion has triggered a lot of companies to start moving outside of China. Not as many as predicted, of course, by economists, right? A lot of companies are staying because of the size of the Chinese market. But that has already been happening. And with China's demographic transition now with a shrinking labor force, that will happen more. I think already you have just an economic reason why China's advantages are starting to erode. And then, of course, as you know, we have COVID, uh, which has increased a ton how companies see risk in supply chains. And I think, of course, there's zero COVID in China now, which has slowed growth undoubtedly, and we don't know how far it's moving forward. At the same time, if you look at FDI patterns into China, right, during COVID, FDI has increased into China much more than it has elsewhere around the world. So despite all these assessments that zero COVID would cause companies to leave, we have not really been seeing that. In terms of geopolitical risks, the trade war is cited by a lot of companies as a reason maybe not to consider more investment into China. But, you know, again, I think China's market is so huge that we're not seeing too much movement away. More of what we're seeing in some way is a, a high cost strategy of duplicating supply chains. And I think we'll see more of that. So McKinsey did this study of CEOs involved in supply chains even before COVID, I think the study came out in early 2020, and something like 93% of companies were already considering reshoring to some degree, even at the cost of short-term costs. So this will be happening. I don't think that China is suddenly going to, to face deep difficulties in terms of its supply chain dominance. I think that will continue just given China's size, given the China's large market, given China's economic growth. Which are the supply chains that are really already moving out of China? 
I think on the sort of low cost end, you're seeing some movement as Chinese firms are priced out. So some movement in sort of textiles, which have gone elsewhere and really labor intensive industries. For the most part, I don't think we're seeing a ton of movement outside of China and a lot of the industries that get maybe the most attention. Some of these industries work in China already, something like semiconductors. Rarest elements, we are seeing movement outside of China as China's costs have gone up and production has increased elsewhere. But then I think we're seeing it's much more targeted levels, right? So if you think of something like pharmaceuticals, where there's now investment from Defense Production Act in the U.S. to try to invest in pharmaceuticals to not be so reliant on China. So I think they're seeing some movement that's more policy-driven of moves away from China. But I think more broadly, we're looking at a much longer-term trend of, of supply chain movement out of China. Is the main trend that, at least in some sectors, that there's just vertical integration of the supply chain for the products that companies want to sell in China. And so you have one supply chain in China and then one for the rest of the world. Is that a correct description of what is evolving? You know, I think that's definitely a correct description of what is expected to evolve. Now, I have not seen that much, you know, despite the surveys that I just said from McKinsey, where everyone says they're going to reshore. I think in practice, we haven't seen that nearly as much as expected, right? Companies saying in surveys that they're reconsidering moving supply chains out is all well and good, but the suppliers, they know the cost advantages, are they're all still there. So I don't think this is going to happen at some rapid clip. So let's talk a little bit about the U.S. policy response to the growing concerns about China's dominance in supply chains. Obviously, with the passage of the CHIPS Act, there is more support now in the United States for industrial policy. So I'm curious whether you think that that is going to be an effective response. And then maybe we'll talk about the impact of uh, the tariffs. But first, give me your sense as to how impactful the CHIPS Act will be and whether you think that the United States should move into the realm of using industrial policies more in the future, which, of course, historically we have done. This is not completely new for the United States. I get you could cite aerospace as one example where the United States has certainly had industrial policies. But is this the right path for the U.S.? Another great question. I wish I knew American policy as well as I should, in a sense. I think that you know, from my perspective, focusing on China, right, I think the challenge is U.S. overestimation of the threat posed by China's industrial policy, overestimation of what China's actually done. And in that sense, then an underestimation of our own capacity for innovation. We're still the most innovative country in the world in terms of what we produce, right? And I don't think there's any question there. And that's the same perspective you'd have in China, right? China still looks at the U.S. as, as the dominant innovative power in the world. And so, I think we should definitely keep those advantages. We should promote our advantages in higher education and in free markets and in global integration. Now, does that mean we shouldn't have targeted industrial policies? No, I think there's probably very many good reasons to have targeted industrial policies. Now, some of those can be about, you know, totally divorced from China, about producing American jobs. Um, there's other reasons that I, I don't need to get into. Um, there's many more experts that can speak to that. In terms of targeting specific vulnerabilities, I think, yes, there's a response that's necessary. And that's both for, obviously, for China, things that China dominates production in. I think any vital product that has a single source abroad, um, given the nature of risk in the world right now, having some backup plan on a lot of these products is probably a good idea. Now, you have to go into the weeds and really determine what those products are. I mentioned pharmaceuticals earlier. This seems like a clear example where a relatively low amount of investment can help in terms of stockpiling, in terms of domestic production. If the defense industry thinks that there are certain rarest that we need, again, maybe we need some form of stockpiling. 
industrial policy itself, I think can be useful. The CHIPS Act in particular, right? I haven't read every word of the act. My worry, having looked at China for so long, you know, I think China's experience is telling. You have a lot of money in semiconductor investment in China. A lot of it's gone to massive incumbent firms that have not used it very well. Um, a lot of it has gone to picking winners, and these winners are complete losers and go bust. You've had oh, at least 10, in the last couple of years, at least 10 multi-billion dollar investments in China. As local semiconductor firms have just gone belly up. Some of those have done so for somewhat legitimate reasons. Some of those have done so because you have people that are fraudulently saying they have degrees in something but don't even have high school educations and are leading companies in Wuhan and taking all the money from local investors and, and the local government. So I think there's a lot of scope for corruption when you have industrial policy, which is naturally distortionary. That's the point of industrial policy. So there are times when it works. I think the CHIPS Act has a lot of good ideals in it and probably will have some positive effects, but there will also be waste. And how much of that are we willing to accept? There's obviously debate in the United States now about whether to lift some of the tariffs that were imposed on China by the Trump administration. And you've written a bit about how the tariffs have negatively affected the U.S. economy. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how the tariffs have affected China's supply chains and what impact you think lifting the tariffs would have on those supply chains. Would it help us? Would it help China? <laughs> yeah, so... I think in full disclosure, I will be honest that when the tariffs were initially imposed um, and discussed, I thought they would have a much larger effect on China than they did. I think that I was surprised by, in some sense, the minimal effect on China. Now, part of this is the massive difficulty in, in the short term finding alternative suppliers. So in the end, we ended up buying a lot of the same things from China um, and just basically paying more for them. I do think that the two major effects that the trade war and the tariffs have had in China. One has been a weakening of the private sector. China's exporters are almost all small, or not small, but they're almost all private sector firms. This is not the SOE-dominated industry. That's more for domestic production um, and heavy industry. Now, the second effect has been, of course, this accelerated shift towards self-reliance. Now, I'm not going to claim that China was not moving towards technological self-reliance ideals before the trade war, but the trade war spurred this much faster and, and further. And I think especially the trade war with the tariffs combined with the sort of technological war, whatever we want to call it, when we started putting export bans on, on ZTE um, and Huawei, that was China's Sputnik moment when China said, they can shut down our major companies this quickly. We need to do something about this, whatever the cost. So that obviously pressured China more in a direction that's antagonistic to our interests. So I think the trade war was ineffective from that perspective. Now, in terms of the effect of lifting tariffs, you know, it's not too clear. I think obviously there'd be some effect in the U.S. in terms of reducing inflationary pressures to some small degree. And a lot of economists have done work on this and we're not going to have some massive, uh, you know, deflationary effect, but it would decrease inflationary pressures somewhat. I think the major reason actually that I started talking about the trade war tariffs in, in you know, the op-ed that you may have seen and elsewhere is I was doing research on public opinion in the U.S. and and now also I'm doing research on public opinion in China on the tariffs and on the trade war and on economic cooperation with the U.S. And I, you know, I don't need to get into this too much. It's sort of a different topic, but I, I was really surprised in finding that individuals who were most concerned about war with China and thought that we entered a new Cold War and really saw this great power competition were actually much more likely to support removing tariffs. They'd become less supportive of tariffs over time because they thought they were inching us towards 
decoupling or war that would be problematic to you know the, the future of the world. Um, and so that what I call them is sort of instinctive commercial peace theorists. There's an idea in political science, the commercial peace, whereby countries that trade with each other don't go to war with each other. And, and I found it really interesting that a lot of individuals in public opinion polls who have obviously not done this research and read their IR theory still have this natural, oh, maybe it's time to integrate now uh, when before, when there wasn't sort of a, a likelihood of war, they were less inclined to integrate. And I'm actually finding similar results on the Chinese side, which I find interesting. Anyway, so that was much of the reason for my argument that getting rid of tariffs would not be a political catastrophe. And right now they're not doing anything to help the U.S. economy. One of the Chinese industrial policies that is talked about quite a bit abroad is made in China 2025. And that really captured the attention of so many people in the administration and particularly in Congress, where the Chinese identified these 10 areas where they were going to invest in. And the aspiration, of course, is to become dominant in them. And now we have just, I guess, a few years, three years left in Made in China 2025. Do you think that this has been a successful industrial policy? What lessons do you think the Chinese have drawn at maybe central and local levels about the implementation of this policy? And will there be another one after 2025? They will identify maybe 10 different industries that they want to become dominant in. Sure. So I think Made in China 2025 is so interesting because it's a case of you know, aspirational propaganda that got China into trouble in a sense. So I think maybe China 2025 both vastly understates and vastly overstates China's industrial policy efforts, right? This was not the first plan that China had to try to increase its domestic production and indigenous innovation. But made in China 2025, focusing on these 10 sectors in which the U.S. often has an advantage, really hit policymakers here hard in a way that when you talk about the medium and long-term plan for science, and you know, it doesn't have the same ring to it, right? So China's five-year plans, which have developed, and China's strategic emerging industries, there's been a ton of sector-specific and other industrial policies since about 2006 when the medium and long-term plan came out, which I think are covered dozens of sectors. So, you know, interestingly, from China's point of view, I think China realized it overstated its case and made in China 2025 and was maybe shocked by some of the backlash to that. And if you look, when the trade war began, China basically stopped mentioning Made in China 2025. If you look at people's daily numbers, references to Made in China 25, they completely collapse right when the trade war begins. But that doesn't mean China stopped talking about self-reliance, technological self-reliance. Those terms, indigenous innovation, talked about more and more and more, right? So I think Made in China 2025 is maybe representative of broader industrial policy. And if it is, then... You know, yes, I think China will continue to have plans that look at individual sectors. And we've seen more of those even since Made in China 2025. We have the AI plan, we've had other plans. These will continue to come out. China still wants to improve its dominance or at least its ability to compete in certain sectors. And it will continue to have these plans, which involve a lot of top line money that's indicated and then a lot of local implementation. China's system is just too vast to really change that broad system. So what has China learned then? Well, you know, I think the shortcomings that I've tried to identify, it's not like I have special access to China that Chinese policymakers don't have, right? They've identified these problems as well, of course. So I think on the one hand, the focus on local implementation, and a lot of this is industrial policy, but it's really all economic policy. Local implementation has been a huge concern of Xi's. 
And Xi Jinping has devoted all sorts of attention to trying to improve local implementation. Even if we think about the anti-corruption campaign, obviously a lot of that's about corruption or even about getting rid of political uh, political enemies. But there's a whole aspect of it through the implementation, which is actually about trying to ensure that local government officials implement policies correctly. You have a lot of new verticalization of policy that tries to get local officials to implement things better. All sorts of different changes to the cadre management system and norms that, again, try to work on implementation. The fact that these keep coming out and keep coming out implies to me that they're not actually working, although we'll have to keep up with the data to see if implementation is really improving. But that's one area where there's clearly the government is trying to make an effort to change industrial policy to have better implementation. I think the other area is shifting towards more market-driven measures of industrial policy. Obviously, it's industrial policy, so it's not market-driven, but trying to have a a government guidance fund approach that's more based on sort of VC-type models than on bureaucrats deciding where money should go. But again, that's really, that's a good idea. It's really tough to implement because at the end of the day, the money is coming from these local governments. They still want to intervene. So we've had a lot of government guidance funds that have given money to these semiconductor firms that have gone belly up and that have not been good investments. So that's obviously a direction the government wants to go. I'm not sure how successful that will be. The final question I'd like to ask you, David, is about a topic that you talked about in your June testimony to the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, which you referenced earlier, and I encourage uh, all of our listeners to read. But you argued that China is more vulnerable to U.S. economic coercion than vice versa. I am really interested in China's economic coercion as it has used it and continues to use it. We've seen it against beginning even with Norway in 2010. And of course, since then, we've had cases against South Korea. Australia is still ongoing. Uh, Taiwan now, even more economic coercion. And there are lots of other smaller cases as well, some of which have been resolved. But again, cases like Taiwan and Australia very much still continuing. So I'm wondering if you can explain your reason about why you think China is more vulnerable to economic coercion, particularly from the United States? And then if you have any thoughts on what's the effective response by the United States and by our allies, Uh, the European Union, of course, is developing this anti-coercion tool. Maybe that's one way to do it. But what do you think is the right response with the goal being that we'd like to get China to stop its economic coercion? (laughs) Yes. Uh, So... Both economies are highly dependent on each other. And I think trying to say that China is more dependent on the U.S. than vice versa, maybe I was a little glib in saying that so quickly. I mean, I I think both economies are just extremely dependent on each other. I don't want to overstate the case. But I was really trying to contrast the U.S.-China relationship with the other bilateral relationships China's had where it's applied pressure. So for most of China's economic coercion, and you've definitely looked at this more than I have, so you should jump in and correct me. But, uh, you know, China is... China's been quick to use this for like for political reasons, but it's generally been limited in scope and limited in impact, I think, actually. And there, there's these high-profile events like not taking salmon from Norway, which actually just gets rerouted, then China still imports salmon from Norway. Um, but China has been really loath to implement these tactics when they can really harm China itself, I think. And I think the one exception that maybe proves the rule in that case is Australia. And I think Chinese policymakers regret having gotten this deep with Australia because it has not produced the results they want and helped lead to things like the blackouts last year, which were really problematic domestically, um, given given the coal imports. So I think, you know, I, I think China's already loath to use a lot of this, but then the U.S. is not Norway, nor is the U.S. even Australia, of course, right? The U.S. has a lot of advantages that these countries don't have. And I think the first thing it has of course, is this technological advantage, right? China, the U.S. is still the world's leader in high-tech innovation, and China is still dependent on U.S. technology. 
It's trying to invest in all these semiconductors, but all of that technology still comes from the U.S. The U.S. was still able to bring ZTE to its knees. Uh, Ren Zhengfei, Huawei's CEO, had an internal memo leaked last month about the difficulties that Huawei still faces. And so much of that is U.S. pressure. Um, so I think China knows that the U.S. is a different beast when it comes to technology and China's dependence there. More importantly, perhaps, in terms of China's fear of its vulnerabilities is finance. U.S. controls SWIFT. The U.S. controls the plumbing of global finance. And China is terrified of being left out of that since 2009, really, but 2015. I and mean, we've had all these different times when China has said, Remedy internationalization is a big goal, right? And it's gone nowhere. It's been a joke. It's not. So China is still dependent, as dependent on the U.S. dollar as it ever has been. And again, it's a long-term goal to move away from that, but China hasn't done so. So I think for these reasons, and just the size of the U.S. market for China, and the fact that the U.S. is able to work with all of these partners and allies, that the U.S. is actually more, that China is more dependent on the U.S. than vice versa. But again, we're, we're both dependent. Now, in terms of the response, here I just, I would love to ask, you, what is the response to be? Because, you know, I think it's really tough to, to know the correct response, right? Obviously, you'd want to have global institutions, the WTO, all these other institutions in place that could operate more quickly. So maybe reform to the WTO, which isn't really on the books right now, could help. Um, the mechanisms you're talking about in Europe could be really effective. But I think engagement with allies and partners to let China know this isn't okay, to have retaliatory impact would be useful. Um, but, but very complicated, I, th I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the anti-coercion tool is perhaps might work for the Europeans. I don't know whether it would work for the United States. I would like to see this done through the WTO, but that's probably a longer term response. However, ultimately, we need to strengthen the rules-based international order to discourage China from using these measures. But that's going to be difficult to do going forward. But we have reached the end of our time. But I'd like to really thank you for joining us today. We've been talking with David Bowman, who's the Jill McGovern and Stephen Muller Assistant Professor of China Studies at SAIS. And he's U.S. Director of the Pacific Community Initiative as well. It's been terrific to talk to you today. Thanks again for joining us at China Global. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. <laughs> 